Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Innovation Deciphered. I'm your host, Tip Top Tim Fitch, and today I'm joined by Kevin Andrews, who's chairman of Idea Works, which is a really, really interesting business. He had a fantastic career. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hi, Kevin, and uh, thanks for coming in today to see us. Um, I'm really interested to hear, as a sort of fellow entrepreneur, how, how you got started. How did Idea Works come about? Uh, Tim, thanks for the opportunity. Um, 40 years ago, which predates internet and mobile phones and everything else, um, I was uh, getting involved with uh, automating control systems for large venues, hotels, bars, cafe bars, things like that. I was working for Whitbread as a consultant, I also worked for Bose, and this was the dawn of the digital era, so yes. you know, CDs were a new thing, Sony CD101, first CD player out there made things, so um, we were trying to automate uh, lighting and audio in these cafe bars, and when the CD came out we ended up recording trying to make mixtapes, you know, remember the days of the mixtape, uh, with CDs onto Betamax tapes recorded via PCM, so it's recorded digitally, very high quality sound, um, trying to build all this kind of thing. And I came across a company in an area that's now called Silicon Valley um, that was making 100 disc CG, CD changes for oh. rotary things. And they were making them for the US military to store the operating manual for a nuclear submarine. So how do you store that information? They put it on CDs, but there was a lot of, lot of operating manual on us. And so I thought, wow, that could be my dream machine. No more mixtapes. I could get a couple of these machines. I could automate them. We could start making you know, mixtapes on the fly. So I whisked out to California and met with a, with a company who were still in the formation of making these things. They'd made a few. They were getting it right. But one of the things they had also there was a thing called um, multi-room audio, which these days we call Sonos, generically. Yeah. Um, but back then, I thought, there's no market for that. I was an audiophile who would want that and came back to the UK um, in an attempt to launch some built-in speakers by Bose at the Ideal Homes exhibition. I thought, I know that company. That They made this thing, this multi-room thing. Um, so this would be useful for the show home as a way of controlling the audio around the, around the thing. Yeah. So I put, the, put it in this house, expecting to uh, no real response. I got four and a half thousand inquiries in one show. And uh, that kind of, that's one of those strange moments in time when you suddenly go, I didn't think it was a business, but maybe it is. And so I kind of refocused what I was doing on that. We made using kind of uh, pro lighting control, the kind of stuff that came out of theatres and nightclubs building into homes, automating how the lighting worked in homes. Um, and the company really grew from there. And it, and it was just a, as the business grew, the level of uh, desire within the market grew. Um, I got to play with incredible technologies in, in more and more expensive homes and found more and more clients willing to kind of make the leap. And uh, there were companies starting to kind of focus on the smart home market. Um, I attended a show, it's the 
second ever Cedia show in the US. Cedia is the Custom Electronics Design and Installation Association. A bit clunky, but I, it, was, it was a room in a hotel in San Francisco. Everyone had no more than a wallpaper table of kit uh, around the yeah. room. Uh, and when, we, when I came back to the UK, um, I ended up distributing a bunch of brands that I'd found in the States that were doing this kind of thing and was one of the founders of Cedia in the UK. And now Cedia Worldwide is a massive organisation and uh, it is the trade association of smart home technologies, the term you'll understand I, I, I have grief with. Um, but um, that was really the founder of it and the business has now gone on. We're now in six countries and we are 180 people and we focus our efforts really in super yacht and high-end residential around the world. Um, so that's kind of the, is it, how we've got And it's still this really high-end, bespoke design. Yeah. The yeah. mass market. Um, I think what it is, is I feel like a bit like a polar bear on an, on an ice floe, is that uh, as, as consumer technology gets better and better, my iceberg melts. And I'm, I'm now floating on a pretty small iceberg of those people whose homes and yachts are of such scale that consumer equipment just doesn't cut it. You know, you, know, you might say, that, you know, I've got a sonar system, I can do up to 24 zones, but if you've got 600 rooms, then that's not going to do it. So you know, there's still projects out there that need um, an extreme level of technical support to make them work seamlessly and easily and support them 24 hours a day. As, am I right in thinking that the the sort of the core competency of your business is understanding what technology is available and then configuring it and designing it? I'd like to think that we were actually perceived as a design business because actually predating uh, the audiovisual stuff and, and part of what I did back in the hotel and nightclub days was I was a lighting designer. And lighting design is the part that I still love about the business. The technology becomes increasingly challenging and as you lose your hair, so do you lose the ability to understand code and all the other things that goes with it. And so I think that we are a creative agency who we, and we use technology of all sorts to deliver solutions inside the, inside the homes. And that goes all the way through digital art and user experiences. And uh, we still do the, the C in CDO, which is custom. We still make things from nothing um, to deliver something that the client wasn't expecting. And that's always of a technological nature, is it? It's always got some kind of technology. So even when it's lighting and it's, a, and it's an incredible lighting installation, there'll be some technology driving it. So we don't drive circuits of light, we drive individual lights in an, in an environment so that we have, we have much better control over the layers of light that we create and we can make them interactive. We can you know, respond to the environment with them. So not just a light, um, so yeah. And your service for a, a client, is it purely the design or do you supervise the installation? Do you arrange the installation? So, so almost inevitably, we do the whole thing. Uh, we do the design because that's something we love to do. Um, we project manage the implementation because 
what we do is intrinsically difficult, so we need to manage it. Um, we have some of the best engineers in the world. I'll say that because I love them, but they are, they are some of the best engineers in the world, and we need them to have an understanding of what it is that we're trying to create. And after that, you know, when we do a project, I always think when we hand over a project at, at the end of the construction phase is day one of our relationship with that client, which will then extend forever because we will always be the people who are on the end of the phone to help when everything goes wrong. And, you know, stuff goes wrong, powers goes out, Apple put a new password in, you know, who knows what that password is? What well, we do, you know, so that's kind of why we end up doing the whole thing is because it's very hard once you've, once you've created something bespoke to just hand it over to a machine to produce. Yes. Yeah. Because it's all about customer service, isn't it? Yes. And in fact, uh, we're mostly remembered for our aftercare and not for what we did because what we did, you know, I mean, we're plumbers, you know, electronics plumbers, and, and the fact that water comes out of our electronic taps is no surprise to anyone. Um, being there at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night when that hasn't happened, that's what we're remembered for. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it is absolutely a customer service business. Kevin, when you, uh, you were talking about this trade association, which attended yeah. one of their events in the US, sparked the idea. Yeah. And... I think you mentioned then that you created the UK branch or involved in creating it. Talk to me about that because that's uh, every trade is an association. It does. And um, the, 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 the two key people, I guess, at the outset were myself and Steve Moore. Uh, Steve Moore was uh, a fellow integrator, uh, one of my first dealers who saw what I didn't see in Multirum Audio, um, but then became good friend and a, uh, and a uh, technical shoulder to lean on. Um, but he and I formed this senior in the UK as a, as a kind of boys club. And I say boys because it was all boys. Uh, a boys club and we used to meet, you know, once every three months and sit in a bar and discuss the challenges that we had. Um, because it, this was very much in the days of you know, the way I controlled a CD player was by soldering buttons on the back of the play button, connecting them to a relay, which was then connected by... I mean, this is, you know, jerry-rigged stuff. Um, so we all exchanged information in that way. Um, but the com obviously the, the industry has grown, become professionalised, and uh, the trade organisation has become the body which has opened the door to a lot of other industries to join in. So once upon a time, it was the preserve of the, of the bodger and fiddler, which I classed myself as originally, um, to electrical contractors, security companies, um, all sorts of um, people who, telephone engineers, and we don't have telephones anymore, but those people were used to using understood, connecting small wires and making things happen, satellite engineers, um, all of those kind of people have now merged into this industry um, as consumer products become ever simpler to use um, and to install. So and that's what I think the trade body allows has allowed us to do is to 
open the doors to more people to come into ministry. I don't play a, an active role in it anymore. I did run the, in the very early years. Um, I thought that, that I, I probably imposed myself on the organisation a little bit too much at the beginning. Um, but it, it allowed us to you know, agree legal frameworks and terms and conditions and share uh, standards that um, otherwise wouldn't have happened. Did, did this organ or does this organisation have uh, lobby uh, parliament lawmakers to look after the interests of its members? It's, it's very wide ranging. It, it does a lot of a lot of training and certification for people coming in, into the industry. It does represent the industry. Uh, if someone needed to talk to the industry, then you know, that's where they would that's where they would go. And it's a way of, of users coming in and finding competent people to work with. That's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the build up to this. I'm creating something like that for research and development tax industry because it's come under a lot of political pressure recently yes not without justification yeah so it's a personal interest but I, th okay. I think it's these associations play an important part in all the industries there's many many in construction this yeah. is one i've not heard of afraid but why would i um, no no i think i think all of these things are uh, my the managing director of idea works who interestingly joined me as a work experience student um, as as working hard on a on an organisation called Prime, which is uh, taking the prime residential market and seeing how we can be more uh, carbon inoffensive, um, and allowing designers to and architects and everyone in building the construction industry look at, asking them to look at how that not only that can they build better and less. Uh, carbon intensively, but also run their own businesses, and we, we, we you know, in every single way, um, prime members are held to account as to how they run their own business. They're scored on their carbon footprint, and every year to retain membership, they have to improve on their score. Um, so I think all of those, all those things, like any trade, and that is effectively a trade organisation, yeah. um, benefits from sharing. Sharing experiences with other people that are trying to do the same thing and benchmarking members against each other, yes, and set standards, absolutely, yeah. yeah, really, really important. Yeah, I know when we were uh, discussing before we started filming, you, you, you've got this because of your long experience in the industry and you've been there as the technology has developed, you've got a particular view around smart home technologies and how people perhaps misuse those terms yes yes i mean it is a particular hobby horse of mine that that the, the words smart home uh, are are real misnomers because because a lot of what we do is not smart in fact most of what we do is not smart it's simply responding to instructions by smart people um so so where could where I would love to see is, is, is that we are going down a pathway at the moment where more and more devices in the home can have a conversation with the internet. Now, that's not always a conversation which is fruitful. So I have a washing machine, it connects to the internet. It's hard to imagine, given that it comes from a famous manufacturer and they've been washing clothes for a long time, 
that somehow overnight some new way of wetting and drying clothes is going to need a software update. Um, but the, the ability to talk to the internet is, is what's being embedded in smart home, smart home products, but nothing smart's been done with it yet. And I refer back really to, to how we use energy because our, um, it's the focus of everything we're doing in, in the world at the moment is how do we consume less energy and how we do it in a more carbon friendly way. And uh, at the moment, smart home equipment's having conversations with people and I think that it becomes truly smart when it starts having conversations with the energy generation companies. So if my, if my washing machine, instead of talking, telling me it's got a new silks cycle I can run, can talk to the, uh, could talk to the energy generation companies and say, and so when I put my clothes on, come home, end of the day, throw the clothes off, put them in the washing machine. If it came up on its screen, they've all got a screen and it says, if you wash your clothes now, it's going to cost 15 pounds press go, so I'm not being robbed of my choice. Um, if you leave this till midnight, it'll cost you two pounds. And if you leave it just to the energy generation company, probably AI, uh, we'll wash it free. Um, that would be smart. Um, and, and the ability to, 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 for the energy generation companies to control the consumption at the user end and to give us real incentives to understand how we can save energy um, would be a real, what I think would be smart home. Yes, because you're right, because I mean the whole energy business is based on peak demand, isn't it? And being almost enough energy to meet peak demand. Yes, and you know, when we shut down, uh, when we shut down reactors and things like that, and or we, we have a, you know, a loss of wind, which means that we, Suddenly, we're on a knife edge of just enough power the whole time. So it only takes, you know, with extreme weather events out there, it doesn't take much of an extreme weather event for us to, to lose that. So, so my point is, instead of constantly building power consumption, power generation to, to deal with the peak, how do we knock the peak off? Um, and that's where I would love, I would love to see that, uh, that smartness go. Yes, I mean, from what we do in infrastructure, you know, th this has been a big topic. Of course, one of the big ideas is, well, if you can uh, not only give, money, give it, uh, energy to electric cars, but take it from them when you need yep. If they're not moving, obviously, they're still plugged in. There's this huge capacity that's growing the whole time to store energy electricity which is not done very much apart from um, pump storage no at the moment and no, limited I mean, number of those it can do there's a fascinating book i've just read by marcus alvarez i think it is about the hydrogen the future of hydrogen very interesting that um, whilst we're busily putting solar panels on our cloudy roofs um, really the benefits are you know put put solar panels in the Sahara uh, generate your power where the sun is, not where it's. I mean, we're lucky today, but uh, generate the power where the sun is. But but how do you transport that? Well, you use that power to generate hydrogen. Um, hydrogen can flow down the existing pipe networks we have around the world, and that's a really interesting, a really interesting way of of rather than us 
trying to generate small amounts of power with solar panels, which are really not um, massive. They have their own carbon footprint. You know, we make them or we destroy them after a certain period of time. Um, if we could make the, uh, instead of putting solar panels, we could use a slightly better battery technology in the homes. And as you say, as we move to electric cars, we will all have some battery technology in the home. Um, to be able to absorb power when power's cheap and to, uh, and again, put, put that battery in the hands of the power generation companies so that they have control, so that when they know when they're under in peak demand, they've got a whole village that can, can, can draw its power back in from the batteries and use and spread it around the village. Um, yep. Interesting to see in Ukraine when they reinvent the power distribution networks there because we're in a really strange position there. Let's hope one day we're we're in a position to rebuild there. Yes. Um, but um, how they rebuild power generation? And do you do you build more nuclear power stations which are so easily weaponized in the event of war? Or do you build a more scattered, self-generated, balanced, uh, no real central hubs of power kind of thing? It'd be fascinating to see. I, I, I spoke to people who are working on this, on this very uh, plan for the future. And it's fascinating to see what will come out of that. Yeah, I agree with you that the whole Ukrainian situation throws up all sorts of challenges but also uh, lessons for the future because of course they got their own issues with power of course you've then got the whole issue of the rest of the world being dependent on a third party's uh, energy supply yeah and then taking it one step further Ukraine is the second biggest exporter of uh, grain in the world which has been disrupted yeah so lots of uh, strategic Yes, you know, Russian gas, you know, suddenly you turn off Russian gas to Germany and Germany grinds to a halt. Um, you know, what does Russia aim at in the Ukraine? Well, the first thing it's aimed all of its efforts at was, is disrupting, you know, the power grids. Um, it's one of those things. It's, it's a very risky business when you make it as centralised or, or dependent on one thing. Kevin, it's been a... I'm going to call a halt there otherwise we okay. could talk all morning sure. and uh, we'd end up with a feature film rather than a, a podcast it's been fascinating talking to you today right. and uh, i thank you very much and i say goodbye to all of our, our viewers and i hope you've enjoyed this episode and i'll see you on the next one thank you right thanks very much